How is your family preparing for Easter? Coming up, we'll take a fresh look at the Risen One. Along the way, we'll discover facets of the Easter story some of us have overlooked or maybe undervalued. Plus, we'll bring you the latest stories from the Middle East. And in the spirit of springtime, our devotional today is titled Bible Baseball. Hmm, that's all ahead on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to our one-hour flyover of the Middle East with Old Testament scholar Dr. Charlie Dyer, whom we have connected with today in Israel. I'm John Geiger. Shalom, Charlie. And I understand that while you have been in Israel, another archaeological discovery has just been announced. You know, it has, John. Uh, just this last week, a rather stunning announcement was made about the discovery of an Israelite curse tablet. People may have seen that in the news. Well, we're going to focus on it in a few more weeks when additional details are available. But if it's proven to be true, it could provide clear evidence that Israel was in the land much earlier than critics have suggested and that those Israelites were able to read and write. Now, that's no surprise to us. But it definitely creates problems for those who've tried to explain away the historical account of Moses and the Exodus. Well, when we look at the calendar, many of us wonder, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Charlie? Our friends at Life in Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead-up to this year's Passover— to any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah, uh, and this booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life in Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. Well, let's take a look at current events that we've been following this past week in the Middle East. Ten months into its existence, Israel's current coalition government continues to kind of creak along in spite of ever-widening fissures. How much longer can this government last? Well, the coalition does continue to defy the odds you know, in terms of remaining together in spite of its wildly divergent parties. And yet, as you said, the cracks do seem to be getting wider. Uh, Mansour Abbas, the leader of the Islamic Ra'am party, felt the coalition was dragging its feet in addressing his agenda for the Bedouin in the south of Israel. So he ordered his party members to stop voting on legislation. As a result, the opposition was able to introduce several pieces of legislation that would otherwise never have made it to the Knesset floor. And Defense Minister Gantz then used the same threat, ordering his blue and white party not to vote until the coalition presented a bill increasing pensions for retired military officers. Both of those have at least temporarily gotten settled, but the coalition just remains divided. In fact, it's divided over how to respond to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Foreign Minister Lapid condemned the invasion, while Prime Minister Naftali Bennett refused to harshly criticize Russia. Uh, these differences illustrate the significant gaps within the coalition, and yet they're still not the major points of tension. Uh, the difference between the far-left parties and the conservative factions of the government uh, really do show up, and they're quite significant. Now, for example, Moretz wants to legalize gay marriage and adoption, while Ra'am says it'll never support such legislation. Uh, Moretz wants to implement an egalitarian prayer section for the Western Wall, while Yamina, which is Prime Minister Bennett's party, opposes it. And both Moretz and Labor want to block the expansion of settlements in the West Bank, while Bennett and Yamina believe they should be expanded. 
Now, decisions on those and, and other similar items have been postponed up till now uh, because the coalition partners uh, have been trying not to rock the boat, but eventually they're going to demand to be addressed, and that's when this coalition likely will fracture. You know, the only thing the different parties had in common was their opposition to Benjamin Netanyahu being prime minister. And their fear of him returning to power is what's keeping each coalition partner from pressing forward with its agenda. But at some point, those other issues are going to surface. Charlie, ignorant question here. What exactly is the visible signal that tells us the thing is broke, broke, not just fracturing? Well, ultimately, it'll be a a vote of no confidence in the government. And when a vote of no confidence comes up, if uh, a majority vote against the current government, it falls. Uh, caretaker you know, government remains in place. The prime minister remains in place. But then they have to begin immediately looking for new elections. Well, tonight is the start of Ramadan, the Muslim month of fasting from sunup to sundown. What impact will Ramadan have on the already tense relationship between Israel and the Palestinians? Well, what you'll hear officially is Ramadan's the month when Muhammad is said to have received the Quran, and as a result, it's known as the month of mercy, when Muslims are to get closer to God and to treat others with love and kindness. And during the month, with some minor exceptions, all Muslims are expected to abstain from food and drink, including water, from sunup to sundown. Now, right now, that's from about 6.30 in the morning till 7 at night. And by the end of the month, that time of abstinence will grow by nearly another hour. They're also expected to abstain from swearing, sexual relations, gossiping, being selfish or disrespectful, and from listening to music. Because they don't eat all day, they stay up late into the evening eating and drinking to make up for that all-day fast, and then they get up before dawn to do the same thing. So physically, they're sleep-deprived and experiencing hunger and thirst, and that can lead to some rather short-tempered and irritable uh, individuals in the Middle East. You know, last year, Nightly clashes took place between Israel and the Palestinians during Ramadan, especially around Damascus Gate. And the number who gather for Friday prayers at the Al-Aqsa Mosque swells during Ramadan, and that always adds to the tension. Israel's going to beef up its security forces. In fact, in light of the last two terrorist incidents that they had recently, that's already starting to take place. But that'll continue throughout Ramadan to try and prevent an outbreak of violence. But religious tensions are going to be increasing even at a higher level. Now, thankfully, our group is down by the Dead Sea right now, and we don't arrive in Jerusalem till Monday evening. And then we fly back home on Thursday, just before the first Friday of Ramadan. I've been in Jerusalem on the first Friday of Ramadan, and I've seen firsthand how tense it can get, so I'm glad I'm not going to be there. Hmm. If you just joined us, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. We're looking at current events from the Middle East. Locust plagues, well known in the Bible, but their origin has always been something of a mystery, at least until now. Israeli scientists believe they discovered the origin of locust plagues. I'm curious, Charlie, what exactly have they found? Yeah, you know, most people don't realize that scientists have puzzled over the origin of locust plagues for years. Individual or or solitary locusts can be found throughout the Middle East. Uh, They're similar to the large grasshoppers we see at home, but you put two grasshoppers or two locusts together and they hop apart. But at some point, instead of separating, individual locusts begin gathering together. And when that happens, a locust swarm develops with devastating results. Scientists at Tel Aviv University's School of Zoology now believe they've discovered what triggers that change that causes solitary locusts to become what they call gregarious or swarming locusts. Uh, The change takes place in the bacteria of the locust gut. A particular bacteria that's virtually absent in solitary locusts becomes dominant when a solitary locust joins a group of about 200 or more others. 
Uh, these scientists developed a mathematical model which they used to analyze the conditions under which the process takes place. Environmental factors like rain, abundant vegetation, and an increase in the number of solitary locusts eventually helps trigger the change in the level of this particular bacteria. And that in turn produces a chain reaction that spreads to other locusts, causing them to swarm. Now, the information will hopefully help biologists as they watch for the formation of locust swarms in the future. Now, the goal is to control the overall size of a swarm before it grows into an almost unstoppable force that can devastate thousands of acres in a matter of hours. Well, the production of royal purple dye was a closely guarded secret in antiquity, but now a Tunisian history enthusiast believes he has reproduced this technique. Tell us about the development, Charlie. Yeah, this is another scientific detective story you know, I really found interesting. But first, just a little background. Uh, the dye comes from the Murex snail, and it originally developed in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, for years, scientists tried to determine how the dye was produced and from what source, and they eventually matched up the dye with the production facilities they've discovered, which contain thousands of broken snail shells. But this enthusiast living in Tunisia has worked out the specific process developed by the Phoenicians to produce the purple dye from those snails. It's so time-consuming that a single gram of the dye, that's the equivalent to three one-hundredths of an ounce, is being sold for $2,500. Wow. In ancient times, the dye was more expensive by weight than gold. Well, this amateur sleuth spent 14 years working out how to reproduce the dye from the Murex snails, which he purchased from local fishermen. He found that it took 119 pounds of snails to produce a single gram of purple dye. When he first started, his neighbors criticized his hobby. You know, the smell of fermenting snails coupled with thousands of pounds of crushed snail shells doesn't usually endear someone to their neighbor. <laughs> but when they realized that, in essence, he had brought the region's history back to life, well, the criticism ceased. However, <laughs> with all the work required, don't expect to find any purple snail dye in your local Walmart anytime soon. <laughs> Well, you know what they say about a snail's pace, but it paid out for him. Thanks, Charlie, for that look at current events. We're looking forward to your devotional. Bible baseball? What's that all about? Yeah, you know, the, the baseball season's finally coming, so I decided today might be a good day to uh, head out to the Central Benjamin Plateau and play Bible baseball. Okay, look forward to that and a whole lot more, including a conversation next about the Risen One, a way for your family to prepare for Easter, stories we might have overlooked. That and so much more all ahead here on The Land and the Book. It's the most epic of stories. An innocent Savior chooses to take on our guilt chooses to die on the cross and pay for our sins and then be raised back to life three days later. How amazing is that? Welcome again to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger inviting you to a conversation about the Risen One. And before we start that, let's pick up with this quick thought on sharing Christ with our Jewish co-workers, neighbors, and friends. Sometimes you and I are reluctant to engage a Jewish friend in conversation because we presume that they know more about the Bible than us. Should we think that way? And if we do, are we right or wrong? Greg Sabat, your thoughts? Well, that's a common misconception that Jewish people are people of the book. People that know the New Testament and love Jesus, 
there's over 880 allusions to the Old Testament and 250 direct quotations. So Christian, just by their faith in the New Testament, know so much more about the Old Testament than Jewish people. John, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times Gentiles have told me that when they witness to their Jewish friends who are not believers, they say, you know so much more about my Bible, about Jewish holidays than I do. How can you do that? And, you know, Paul talks about making somebody being jealous, you know, and I think that's highly a Jewish thing is that you know their religion better than they do. That's Greg Sabat, who serves with Rock of Israel Ministries, joining us on The Land and the Book. Dr. Scott James is an elder at the church at Brook Hills and is the author of several books for children and families. Scott and his wife, Jamie, have been married for 18 years, and they've got four kids. Scott is a practicing physician and researcher in the field of pediatric infectious diseases. He partners with Focus on the Family as a member of their Physician Resource Council and also serves as a fellow for the Center for Baptist Renewal. Scott is the author of The Risen One. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book, Scott. Thanks for having me back, John. Good to be with you. So you put together this book of weekly devotions, which you suggest are designed for both family and individual use. How does that all work? I designed these devotionals uh, to lead up to Easter during the months leading through Easter, and I I made them uh, hopefully deep enough and rich enough that anybody could pick them up and and benefit from them and just spend time in the Word, right? Like that's the main goal of all of this is just to spend time in the Word, and hopefully it's a a useful guide to do that. But I did make them also short enough and accessible enough with some good interactive discussion questions that parents could use this to walk through with their kids. So it would be an easy and simple on-ramp for parents who are looking for a way to just open the Word of God with their kids and read the Word of God together and just talk about it and pray about it. Yeah. One great feature of The Risen One is that this devotional works for families of all ages, even those of us that have very young, very active children with very short attention spans. How did you manage to do that? Uh, because I have children of my own with short attention spans. So I very, very deliberately designed these to be something that's going to be simple and engaging. I want it to be a manageable thing. I I think when we think about parents leading children in the home, oftentimes we either feel inadequate to the job, like I'm not qualified theologically to have these big conversations with my kids, or we want to bite off more than we can chew and we want to go overboard and do too much. And quickly, you know, our view of what is an ideal family devotional time becomes unmanageable and unachievable. So I wanted to kind of find that happy middle ground where parents feel equipped to be able to walk through a passage and have some ready access to some simple explanations and questions and answers, but also wanted it to be something that was doable and realistic in terms of uh, timeline. And, and, you know, it's hard to get a kid to sit still for 45 minutes to talk through these things. So I want it to be quick and accessible. Scott James is a research fellow of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and serves on Focus on the Family's Physician Resource Council. A practicing physician, Scott has written The Risen One, a devotional for families. Well, many of our listeners have traveled to the Holy Land, Scott. They've been to the Mount of Olives. They've prayed there in the the garden. They've spent time at the garden tomb. How does this book connect us to these places and what they represent in Scripture? My hope is that this book tells this unfolding story of who Christ is, the backdrop behind uh, his coming. So it, it really does kind of intentionally connect all the way back to the Christmas story and lead you into this 
grand narrative of the coming of Christ, the life of Christ, uh, his preparation for what was to come, the sacrifice that he would make, and then actually just guiding families through uh, the, the individual moments that, that lead mm-hmm. up to the cross and the tomb and then beyond. So it's uh, intended to sort of situate the Easter story within the bigger picture of uh, Christ's coming that was told from of old. So it's yeah. uh, very intentionally designed to be a devotional that helps families connect the dots between Jesus's promised coming, his arrival, and his fulfillment of his mission. Here on The Land and the Book, we're taking a fresh look at the Risen One with Scott James, a practicing physician. You know, it seems to me like the ultimate travesty that we would sail through the season of Lent and give only scant thought to the sufferings of the Savior, but that really is the danger we face every year. How can we choose better? I think the temptation is to just focus on those high points of the story yes, uh, yes, and to sort of skip through the valley and get to the mountaintop. And I think there is a sense in which if all you do is celebrate, you lose sight of the glory of what you're celebrating. If all you celebrate is the victory at the end, you kind of forget about the hard work that went in to get there, right? It's like a football team that only ever celebrates <laughs> and forgets the, how tough practice was. I think the celebration is so much more sweet because you realize the valleys you walked through to get there. So I think of something like Lent, a season of preparation that leads up to Easter. It's kind of parallel to Advent, a season of preparation that leads up to Christmas. These are the fasts that make the feast so much more enjoyable. So I want to prepare my heart. I want, I want to lead my family to prepare their hearts to really consider some of the heavy and weighty issues that are at hand. And, and essentially, our sin, our need for a Savior? Why did Jesus have to come and die in the first place? If I sort of skip over that question and only ever celebrate that he came and not why he had to come, then I might be missing some crucial piece of uh, appreciation that I could be reveling in all the more on on those days of celebration. So I want to fast before I feast. And so I I think preparing our hearts through a season of Lent, for instance, would be uh, historically, that's what the church has always done. That's that's kind of our our heritage and our legacy is to uh, remember those times. And then it just makes the feast days so much more enjoyable. I think, though, that this generation struggles in its capacity, its even its interest in showing somber attention to these dark moments. I think of a generation ago on PBS, they aired a TV special, a TV painter, and he often said, to show light, you have to have dark. Well, he was right. And and yet you look at the body of, of worship songs that have been created in our generation, very little of it has to do with suffering. We're all about standing up and you know waving our arms. We love those moments, and they're great. We need to have those. But uh, I, I think we do struggle with intentionality in pondering things in somber modes. It just isn't natural for us. It isn't fun, quote-unquote, and maybe that's the reason why we avoid it. I agree, and it makes sense that we would want to avoid it, right? These are hard and painful yeah. things to walk through sometimes, uh, but it's like in Ecclesiastes says, there's a time for every season, and so there are... Uh, moments where good biblical lamentation can enhance mm-hmm. the celebration that we have. And so I, I think particularly uh, the Psalms are my favorite book of the Bible, this this collection of, of uh, poetry and songs and hymns and uh, meditations. And if you look at the range of emotion yes. that goes throughout yeah. the Psalms, mm-hmm. if you look at the songs of lamentation and the songs of just pure mourning – compared to also the psalms of celebration and anticipation and joy, uh, there's this beautiful balance between all that. And it shows 
I think, a pretty rich and diverse emotional and spiritual life. That's an example. That's that's a, a model that God gives to us. And so, yeah, I, I think if we're ever only on one end of the emotional spectrum, uh, we, we might be robbing ourselves of a, a more full experience of uh, how God would, would have us relate to his world and him. I want to uh, move ahead in the story to the actual crucifixion and what led up to it. No doubt as a doctor, you understand medical aspects of, for example, the crown of thorns, the whipping, the crucifixion that many of us have never thought about. What what insights come to your mind, maybe as you were even putting this devotional together? I think of the pure agony. I, I've heard some really good medical lectures and read some good medical articles on the kind of the, the biophysics of the crucifixion and, and lots of gory medical details. And it's truly appalling. It's, it is horrific and horrendous what our Lord and Savior went through on our behalf. It heightens my appreciation for what he did for us, right, from a, just sort of a, a purely physical, practical standpoint. But it also makes me realize and appreciate all the more that the thing Jesus communicated to us as the most horrific thing he went through was my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so mm-hmm. he doesn't focus on the physical pain that mm-hmm, he endured. Mm-hmm. He doesn't focus on the humiliation he endured as the crowds mocked him. He focuses on that momentary separation from God that he experienced when he took our sin upon him. And so it, it heightens my awareness of my sin is so incredibly offensive to God. My sin is so problematic yes. in this whole equation that even as Christ endured this horrific death, that wasn't even the top of his mind. That wasn't even the most uh, burdensome thing on his mind at that moment. His, the most burdensome thing on his mind at that moment was the sin that separates us from God. So we come to the moment when Jesus has finally conquered death, when he has, in fact, become the risen one. And Easter is a wonderful celebration. Sometimes I wonder if we just sort of leave it at that, forgetting that the fact that he has risen comes with it an assignment for us. I mean, it's a lifestyle that we're engaged in here. It's not just a party that we have once a year. It's something that we overlook all too often, I think. And it becomes this normal language, for, particularly for those of us who have grown up in the church. We we talk about the resurrection of Christ like it's, you know, some random thing that happened last Tuesday. It is mind-blowing, the fact that we are talking about a person who was dead and buried for three days and then is now alive again. And I teach my own kids, and I teach in our church, and one of the things I do is when we're talking through that, if I'll mention something about the resurrection, I'll kind of purposefully mention it in a ho-hum sort of way, and the kids will all just sort of accept it and go, yeah, 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 and then I'll kind of stop and help them realize, like, do you guys understand how ridiculous that is, what I just said. Like, do you understand how crazy it is that that happened? And I'll, I want to, like, stoke their wonder yeah. for that moment, yes. their, their appreciation for how truly remarkable it was that, that we're serving a Lord that died and rose again from the dead. So I, I kind of want to make sure kids are appropriately have their mind blown by that fact. And then, just like you said, it has implications for us each and every day. So we were buried with Christ in death and raised to walk in newness of life. So his new life is our new life if we are in him. And so I want to always remember that each and every breath I breathe at this point as a follower of Christ is because his resurrection has given me new life. And so it's my life that I lead. I now walk in step with him based mm-hmm. on his resurrected life. So, yeah, it has marching orders that go with it. We're, we're to carry on that mission of the risen Christ and not forsake that mission in our daily walks. Dr. Scott James has written The Risen One. You know, I couldn't help but end this conversation, Scott, by thinking about that person who's listening and right now finally says, huh, 
It makes sense now. Now I get why Jesus came. Uh, now I understood why he was on the cross, to pay for my wrongdoing, my sins. And they, they would like to know how they could be made right with God. Scott, would you lead us in a brief prayer that would take someone to a point of salvation in Jesus? Absolutely. That would be my pleasure. Father, you have given us life. You have given us everything. And, and, and Father, we in our hearts uh, have wandered from you. Each and every one of us has received your gift of life and uh, walked away from you in some way or shape or form. And so, Father, that separation that has come into our life because of how we wandered from you We've, we find ourselves in this position where there's no way back unless you yourself come and get us. And that's exactly what you did. So, Father, I want to right now thank you for Jesus Christ coming, uh, for him seeking us out, for him being the shepherd that goes and finds the lost sheep, for bringing us back into the fold, uh, for dying the death that we deserve, and for raising to life in triumphant victory over death, ensuring a way for all of us to have new life in him and to be brought back into your kingdom, uh, joyful and reconciled with you. Uh, so, Father, I pray, I pray right now that listeners, anyone here who is uh, hearing this and listening to this would feel the weight of sin and would not be burdened by it in a way that keeps them down, but that it would help them lift their eyes to Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Amen. You can keep this conversation going right now with a volunteer who would love to help you meet Jesus as the leader of your life, the forgiver of your sins. Call 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Scott, we sure appreciate your insights and your book here, The Risen One, a link to the book and more about you at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you, John. And stick around for more as Charlie Dyer is here with a fresh set of questions on The Land and the Book. Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you ever experienced a Passover Seder? Well, this year you can. Our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you in the lead up to this year's Passover. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. So visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button for more information and to sign up. So glad you stuck with us here at The Land and the Book for segment three, questions and answers. I love this segment, and I know you do too. So many questions come to us, Charlie. We're going to get out of the way and get to your questions, starting with this one. Does prayer with repentance and true or right motives cause God to change his mind from wrath to mercy? Scripture says in Numbers 23, verse 19, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 36, that God will not change his mind. But in Jeremiah 26, three separate times. It says in this chapter, God will change his mind, verses 3, 13, and 19. And in Jonah, it seems to indicate that God changed his mind when the people of Nineveh changed their ways and repented at Jonah's warning. What's your take on this? Yeah, and it actually is confusing at first when people read this, but we need to understand this. God doesn't change his mind or repent in the same way that we do. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Two key verses in this regard are Numbers 23, 19, which you mentioned, 
which says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And the other verse is Malachi 3, 6, where God said, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, those times when it appears that God relents or changes his mind, it's actually written from a human perspective. God's character and his promise to bless those who come to him in faith and to judge those who rebel, well, that never changes. But his interaction with humans can appear to change depending on their personal actions. They're actually the ones who change, not him. And that's the principle that God explains, uh, not in that Jeremiah 26 passage, but in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 5 to 11. Question here from Jim, who takes us to 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1 says that Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. Does it have any other names? And what is the difference between Mount Moriah and Mount Zion? Yeah, the name Mount Moriah only occurs twice in the Bible. Uh, The first time's in the connection with Abraham offering up Isaac in Genesis 22, and the second is that passage in 2 Chronicles 3. I believe its use in Chronicles is by design to let us know that the place God selected for Solomon's temple was the same place that he had sent Abraham back in Genesis 22. The hill was just north of the original city of Jebus or Salem, which later is renamed Jerusalem. The word Zion has the basic meaning of fortress or citadel. When describing Jerusalem, it was first used in 2 Samuel chapter 5 when David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And it was probably given the name Zion because of its fortifications, which seemed almost insurmountable. Now, when the temple was initially built, Solomon assembled the leaders, it says in 1 Kings 8, to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the city of David, which is Zion, to his new temple. So initially, the fortress city of Zion or Jerusalem was distinct from Mount Moriah, which is actually a little bit higher than the hill on which the city is built. Though the two were very close together geographically, Mount Moriah didn't have the water supply. That's why the city was built on the lower of the two hills. Now, eventually, Zion came to refer not just to the city of David, but to the entire city, especially as it became the dwelling place of God. I love Psalm 48, verses 2 and 3. It refers to Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in her citadels, and he's shown himself to be her fortress. It's in that sense uh, that Mount Moriah, which was actually the hill on which the temple stood, and, and Mount Zion, which originally referred to the lower city captured by David, eventually became synonymous for all of Jerusalem. It was the place where God dwelt and provided her protection. Uh, One last point. Since Mount Zion was known as the city where God dwelt, eventually the word became a figure of speech to refer to God's heavenly city of Jerusalem. For example, in Hebrews 12, uh, the writer says, but you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. We are the land and the book. And that we includes you as you email us your questions like Dave did. He says, recently, Charlie shared a number of good links for Bible maps. Is it possible to share these again? I love maps. Yeah, and in fact, in that earlier question, I was asked about children's Bible maps. But in terms of maps for adults, here are some options. Uh, And if you want to write these down, it's www.knowingthebible.net forward slash Bible hyphen maps. Uh, These maps are simple, but they're well done, and the developer allows for free, non-commercial use, so you can use them for your own personal study or when teaching a class or Bible study. Uh, Second one is holybooks.com forward slash Bible hyphen atlas. Uh, The site has a PDF link to an online atlas you can download, and the maps, I think, are compiled from several sources. And the third one is the simplest of all. It's biblemaps.com. 
Now, it's not a free resource, but they do show you what they have available. And the cost to purchase a CD of the maps, it's fairly reasonable. So it's worth checking out. Marsha emailed us to say, I listen to your podcast and look forward to it each week. I especially enjoy the news with what's going on right now, politically, and with all those amazing innovations from Israel. In 2 Samuel 12, verses 24 and 25, she says, Bathsheba gives birth to a son, and he is named Solomon. But the Lord then sends Nathan the prophet to tell him to name the son Jedidiah. My question is, why is he not called Jedidiah? Yeah, and I need to answer this one two ways. Uh, First, it's clear that this isn't a case where David chose a name that's different than the one intended by God. And I say that because in 1 Chronicles 22, in verses 9 and 10 there, David explained to Solomon what God had said to him regarding the son he would have who would build the temple. In fact, he says there, but you will have a son who will be a man of peace and rest, and I'll give him rest from his enemies on every side. His name will be Solomon. He's the one who will build a house for my name. So even before the child was born, God told David to name him Solomon, uh, which comes from the word for peace because he was going to be a man of peace. So God gave the child two names, Solomon and Jedidiah. And that's when we need to ask, why would God give a child two names? Right. And I think we have other Old Testament illustrations that help. You know, we know that the child who was born, uh, Jesus, uh, was named Yeshua, uh, the name for salvation, the Lord providing salvation. But in Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah was told to name him Emmanuel, God with us. And then later in chapter 9, God said the child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, Those descriptive titles were given to show that the child would have other names that he'd be known by. So the idea of having multiple names isn't actually that unusual in the Old Testament. But now, back to Solomon. His actual name, as it appears again and again, was Solomon. And as I said before, it comes from the Hebrew word for peace. But after the death of Bathsheba's firstborn child, God wanted to announce to David and Bathsheba that this second child wouldn't suffer a similar fate. So God provided a descriptive title or name for the child, Jedidiah, which means literally beloved of the Lord. Mm. And in that sense, God announced that Solomon would be called beloved of the Lord, picturing God's favor that would rest on this child. Naomi emailed us to say, I have been reading the book of Judges to my children, ages two, six, and eight. We're especially intrigued by Samson, of course, and loved reading about him being included in the book of Hebrews in the Hall of Fame of Faith. We were wondering if there is any historical evidence or scholarly opinion on how long Samson was a prisoner of the Philistines and pushed that grain mill. I can only imagine what he thought and the eventual contrition of his heart as he walked around and around and around. I also assume that is why he ended up being listed in Hebrews. Also, how big were those grain mills? Were they usually pushed by oxen? Yeah, we're not told how long Samson worked in the Philistine prison, but there are some hints that can help us narrow down the time. You know, hair grows about half an inch a month or about six inches a year, so it would have taken years for Samson's hair to grow to its former length. But the Bible only says the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off in Judges 16. Now, that suggests it was more likely months rather than years. And the fact they brought Samson out during a time of sacrifice to their god Dagon Uh, Well, that suggests that it was a time of national celebration, perhaps an annual event. They wanted to bring out Samson to show how their God had delivered him into their hands, and that would suggest this might have been the first celebration since his capture. Now, if I put all that together, I think it's possible. Samson was a slave grinding grain in that Philistine prison for several months, but likely less than a year. And in terms of the size of those grinding stones, well, we don't have any from that time, but we have some from later times, and they are hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Uh, it would definitely normally have been pulled by an animal, but 
Uh, they put Samson to work, and he was working rather hard. And that's a look at questions that have come in recently to The Land and the Book. You should know that yours is welcome, too. Connect with Charlie with a quick email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie, I'm looking forward to your devotional coming up next. I hope you'll stick around, too, as well for that devotional next on The Land and the Book. Well, here we are at the beginning of baseball season. Imagine. Now, I have to confess I am something of a Cubs fan, especially after they won the World Series. But I have to ask, Charlie, do you have a a favorite baseball team? I do. I grew up loving the Philadelphia Phillies, which also made me a masochist for much of my uh, childhood life. (laughs) Well, Charlie, you're on deck with a devotional that you've titled Bible Baseball. Where are we going with that? Uh, We're going to head north of Jerusalem, and I don't want to give it away until we get into the uh, site itself, but you're going to love it. All right. Well, we'll let you uh, take a swing at that in just a moment. But first, a fresh perspective from a traveler who's spent some time in Israel. Listen to this Holy Land experience. Hi, my name is Judy, and this is my Holy Land experience. One of the things that has impressed me as we tour around Israel is the many people groups who are here. Some of them are visiting from other countries. Some of them are indigenous to this area. But I see that many tribes and many tongues, and it's happening right here, right in front of our very eyes. And I can imagine it happening in the New Jerusalem. Hi, my name is Mary, and this is my Holy Land experience, a trip that I've looked forward to for a long time, and now it is a reality. And what I am experiencing is the Bible coming alive in front of my eyes, seeing all of those things that we read about in the Bible, and hearing about them, and Charlie telling us about them, and the history has just been completely amazing. You're listening to The Land and the Book, and on this fourth segment of our program, we give Charlie a few moments to take his time. Give us a snapshot right from the Holy Land and tie us to the scripture that accompanies that picture. Here's Charlie with what he's calling a Bible baseball devotional. Ah, Thanks, John. Yeah, grab your mitt, knock the dirt off the spikes, and follow me out to the diamond. The boys of summer are showing up to play Bible baseball. Okay, lest you think our regularly scheduled devotional has been interrupted by a Cubs-White Sox game from Chicago, uh, let me explain. For most Americans, geography isn't a strong subject. In fact, we tend to be geographically challenged, and this hurts us when it comes to understanding the Bible, especially the Old Testament. The writers assumed we would know the places they were talking about, but for most of us, those places are nothing more than hard-to-pronounce names on a page. We have no clue where the place was located or what it looked like or how it connects to other places in the Bible. The names become ghostly locations floating through the pages of Scripture and only loosely attached to the land itself. Here's a brief test to prove my point. Picture in your mind a map of Israel. Now, place the following cities on that map. Gibeon, Gibeah, Ramah, Bethel. How'd you do? I suspect most of us wouldn't score well if we had to turn in that pop quiz. In fact, we might even do worse if we were asked a second question. Name a key person from the Bible whose name is connected with each of those cities. Yikes. 
but back to my introduction, what do those cities have to do with baseball? Well, to answer that question, I need to take you to a spot in Israel just five miles north of Jerusalem. Our time in Israel was spent walking uphill and downhill. God told Israel the promised land was a land of hills and valleys, and you're now convinced of that description based on our time there. The city sits atop a spiny ridge that runs north to south through the hill country of Judah. And just a bit further north, a similar ridge runs through the territory promised to the tribes of Ephraim. But between those two mountainous ranges rests a relatively flat area called the Central Benjamin Plateau. Now, don't let the name fool you. It's not perfectly flat. But compared to the hilly ridges to the north and south, it's relatively flat, and it's centrally located between those two tribes. And as the name implies, this area is part of the land allotted to the tribe of Benjamin, hence the name Central Benjamin Plateau. The plateau itself is only about eight miles long and five miles wide. Yet according to Jim Monson, the man who ignited my passion for the land of Israel, about 50% of the action narratives in the Old Testament took place on and around this tiny piece of real estate. 50%. And that's what brings me back to Bible baseball. In trying to help students understand the importance of this plateau, I searched for whatever help I could find, and that's when I came across the idea of Bible baseball. Almost everyone knows what a baseball diamond looks like. So we decided to make a baseball diamond out of the central Benjamin Plateau. Now, if you have a piece of paper handy, draw a baseball diamond on it. I'm also going to share the starting lineup, so be ready to write down some names. At first base is the city of Geba, G-E-B-A. It's on the eastern edge of the Central Benjamin Plateau, and playing first is King Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor-bearer went from Geba when they attacked the Philistine outpost and routed the entire Philistine army. Second base, at the very northern edge of the Central Benjamin Plateau, is Bethel. And guarding second is the patriarch, Jacob, who had his dream of a ladder extending to heaven while he was at Bethel. Midway between second and third is shortstop. Shortstop is the city of Gibeon. And playing shortstop today is Joshua. Joshua marched all night from near Jericho to rescue the people of Gibeon, with whom he'd made a treaty of protection. And that leads us to third base, which is a place called Nevi Samuel. Now, not all agree, but I'm convinced it's biblical mitzvah. So write mitzvah there. And playing third is the prophet Jeremiah who went to Mitzpah after the fall of Jerusalem. Unfortunately, the temporary governor ruling for Mitzpah was assassinated, and Jeremiah was carried from there to Egypt. The pitcher's mound is a city named Ramah, and on the mound today is the prophet Samuel. Samuel's hometown was Ramah, and it sits in the very heart of the central Benjamin Plateau. And our final stop around the infield is home plate, which is Gibeah. Now, don't get confused by the three towns with similar names. First base was Geba, shortstop was Gibeon, and home plate is Gibeah. And in the batter's box at home is King Saul, because Gibeah is Saul's hometown. We have one spot yet to fill on our roster. Behind home plate is young King David. The catcher's position is the location of Jerusalem, the town chosen by David as his capital. It's just off the central Benjamin Plateau, the first town south of Gibeah. 
Okay, I know this sounds more like a sports story than a devotional, but follow me to the rooftop of the building on Nevi Samuel, uh, third base, mitzvah, in our diagram. From this one spot, you can see from Jerusalem to Bethel and from Geba to Gibeon. And the compact size of the central Benjamin Plateau becomes instantly apparent. Yet in spite of its small size, it played an amazingly significant role in Bible history. From the patriarch Jacob to Joshua at the time of the conquest, to Saul, Jonathan, and David at the start of the monarchy, to Jeremiah at the time of Jerusalem's fall to Babylon, this tiny piece of real estate witnessed some of the most remarkable events in Bible history. And those events take on a greater degree of tangibility and reality when we understand their geographical setting. But what difference can the Central Benjamin Plateau, or Bible baseball for that matter, make in your life this week? I'd like to suggest the following. The next time you're reading your Bible and come across the name of a place with which you're not familiar, stop. Take a few moments to look at the maps in your Bible, or at a Bible atlas, or to do a Google search on the name itself, and ask yourself these questions. Where is it? What did it look like? And why was it important? You just might find yourself playing your own game of Bible baseball, populated with your very own team of Bible all-stars. Take time to study the places and watch your Bible study come alive. Thanks, Charlie. I have to say that one definitely was a home run. Couldn't resist that. I actually drew the uh, diagram, as you suggested, got it all all there. And boy, there's an awful lot. It seems to be compacted into a very small area. Uh, you can stand on the roof of that one building and literally tell most of the Old Testament history, uh, and it's within eyesight of where hmm. you are. That's what makes it so amazing. Remarkable. Well, thanks for your time today, Charlie, your insights, your answers to our questions, and lots more. Sure appreciate it. And if you appreciate the land of the book, why not drop an email to this station? Let them know that you listen, that you care about the program, and let us know how the land and the book is shaping your life. Maybe it's helping you teach Sunday school with a with a tighter edge. Maybe you're understanding insights that uh, you've been able to share with a friend. Tell us, would you, at the land and the book at moody.edu. That email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Our website, thelandandthebook.org, features information about every guest, past and upcoming programs. There's a link there to Charlie's Facebook page. I'm telling you, a lot of buzz at the Facebook page because photos are being constantly added, lots of comments from a whole community of people who are very fired up about Israel, the Holy Land, and what they're seeing going on there. So check it all out. The gateway is thelandandthebook.org. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with us today. We appreciate it. The Land of the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for listening. 